Support for WPR comes from Doulaing the Doula, offering birth and postpartum training and certification programs for medical professionals and other interested humans. More information about training is at doulaworkshop.com. Support for WPR comes from Focus on Energy, a statewide program partnering with utilities to bring energy efficiency and renewable energy solutions to Wisconsin businesses. Details at focusonenergy.com. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Social media use was on the rise for years and years, but there are some signs that those trends are tapering off. And a lot of people are turning instead to a different way of connecting online with friends and family, group chats and texts. Whether it's WhatsApp, Messenger, Discord, or just regular old cell phone text messages, people are turning toward this more direct form of group communication instead of relying on social media algorithms to mediate their interactions. Like any platform, group chats have their own set of social dynamics and etiquette that come with up and downsides. We're exploring the rise of group messaging, how we communicate over text with different social groups. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have some kind of group chat, maybe with family members, a particular group of friends? How do they work for you? Do you like them as a way to keep up with people? Or do all the messages start to become too much? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Catalina Toma is an associate professor of communication science at UW-Madison. She researches how people interact over communication technologies. Catalina, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I've been seeing articles about the rise of group chat and thought, well, I don't really do that. And then I thought, well, wait, I've got one with my you know, immediate family and one with my parents, one with my band and one with my football buddies and things like that. It kind of snuck up on me. Is this a big trend that we're seeing out there? People turning toward group text as a mode of communication? I think it is. I think we're seeing definitely an increase in this new form of communication. And it's really interesting to think about why we're mm-hmm. seeing this migration, as you said, from social media platforms, social networking sites to these more personalized, uh, private forms of communication. And I have some theories about that. I'm happy to share. One, I think COVID played a big part mm-hmm. um, in this where opportunities for face-to-face contact were severely limited and there was a need to talk to the people uh, nearest and dearest to us and these platforms uh, provided that opportunity. But second, and I think a little bit more interestingly, is that people have kind of matured in their use of social networking sites. And they've realized that uh, maybe not everybody is interested in seeing what they converse in a, about in a mundane way with friends and family, right? Because that's what would happen when we would you know, tag each other and post on each other's walls and, and comment and talk to each other in a public forum. You know, social networking sites are a, an interesting environment because... Um, they connect us with really large and diverse audiences. We call this context collapse, right? When we talk to people uh, publicly on social media, uh, we talk to groups of people who we would never talk to simultaneously. It could be your your friends and your family and your romantic partner and your boss and your coworkers and a bunch of strangers and some people you met at a party. You would never talk to these people together simultaneously, but on social media you can. And that definitely has some cons. So it makes sense for people to move away from those more indiscriminate broadcasting types of communication to more 
personalized and private and targeted communications through group chat. Yeah, it seems like so much of social media incentivizes you to go big, to have a wider reach, to expand your group of friends or followers or whatever the particular platform has and get messages that lots of people see. Uh, that group chat, you know exactly how many people you're reaching and you, you have no incentive to try to go beyond that. Exactly. Social networking site companies, you know, Facebook, Twitter, X, uh, Snapchat, so on and so forth, are trying to get people to publicize as much as possible, to engage, to share, to overshare, because that's what attracts attention. But from the user perspective, that's not always wise or beneficial. So um, users are opting increasingly for more privacy, and that's what we're seeing with group chats. Is there something about the technology that's making group chat easier? I mean, there are different apps that are better at it, but I've also noticed there used to be uh, Apple-Android divides where things functioned differently. Is it just a smoother, less uh, uh, less frictiony technology now? It is smoother, and I think looking back, I think that was one of the big appeals of WhatsApp when it mm-hmm. first started to get traction. It really facilitated group chats and, you know, it enabled you to give these groups names and use emojis to cutify the, the name and invite people and so on and so forth. And uh, that was a, a real draw of the platform at the time that users enjoyed. Can you talk about how we define social groups within these group chats? Again, on Facebook, say, our social group is everybody who has friended us and whoever they share it with. Now it seems like we're defining things in a different way when we're selectively saying this goes to group A, this goes to group B. Right. And I would say, very broadly speaking, there could be two types of groups. You know, the more permanent groups that you constantly talk to and very typically people have a group for family members people have a group for close friends or different groups of friends that they talk to on on the regular Uh, but there's also more temporary groups like event-based groups we're organizing this dinner with so and so and we want to talk about the logistics and we create a very temporary group for that and that goes away but what's really interesting to me is the more permanent groups that allow for the sense of connection and and sharing in a really non-frictiony way, right? Like, because there's many members of the group, everybody can contribute a little bit. You can feel connected to the group without a a deep expense of energy on anybody's side. Talking to Catalina Toma with the UW-Madison Communication Science Department, looking at the rise of group texting, group chats as a way for people to communicate online instead of in many cases, social media platforms. Is this you? Are you doing this? Join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have that chat going maybe with family members, a group of friends or coworkers or fill in the blank? What do you use it for? Is it ever too much? Do you ever look at your phone and say, what the heck's going on? Why do I have all these messages? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. I'm seeing a lot of articles and comments out there, Catalina, about, yeah, it's getting overwhelming. People use these things in a different way. I'll give one example. In my band, we have a group. It's usually very practical. Is there practice tonight? Here's our latest band files, whatever. And then sometimes three of us get going chatting about something. And the fourth one, hates that and doesn't want to see all those messages pop up. How do we negotiate that kind of etiquette, not just in my band, but in in whatever group we happen to be in? Uh, Yeah, that's really interesting conversations to be had. And I think people are aware of what's interesting to whom, but... Also, the technology allows you to ignore messages pretty pretty easily and with, without a lot of cost, right? So 
I don't know about your group member who's annoyed. It's probably me. I would probably just not read <laughs> those messages. Uh, but if the annoyance is expressed, then you can, of course, um, take the conversation elsewhere. You can create a different group where um, everybody's interested. In my experience uh, and from what I know of research in the psychology of these technologies, people enjoy this sense of connection that doesn't require a lot of effort. Even mm. if you might not read everything, getting those notifications feels good because you're part of a conversation. People think about you. You're included. And all of those are really important psychological signifiers for people that feel really great. There is now a separate group for everyone but the guitarist. So it, <laughs> it, it worked itself out. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Rachel is with us in Eau Claire. Rachel, hi. to comment about the differing media literacy that we have in the world and how many people fake identities and how there's often gatekeeping and less social interaction based on gatekeeping. I uh, try to educate based on uh, ticks, Tourette's diagnosis, Tourette's syndrome, about what different aspects of it mean. Uh, people on TikTok came at me, attacked me. They found out where I went to university and they reported me to the university and I'm like, I try to educate people, but you're going to be mean. Let's go group chat. Rachel, I got you. Thanks a lot for the call. Not a great signal there, but Rachel, talking about some of the risks of those much more public-facing sites, in this case, TikTok, uh, versus having that group chat with people you're not going to be, you're not as likely to be attacked by, say, total strangers on that personal group chat. Absolutely. I really enjoyed uh, Rachel's point and her emphasis on some of the more serious risks mm -hmm. of posting on social media, right? It's not just oversharing and giving too much information to friends and family uh, in a way that it could make they could be annoyed with you, but very serious risks like identity theft and so on and so forth. So uh, to mitigate those risks of social media, moving to more private channels of communication makes a lot of sense. And I really love that Rachel brought on the concept of social media literacy, which is something we're all, we're all working on, right? And it's not always super um, obvious on how to navigate these complicated spaces, which is why we have programs like this one. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for the call, Rachel. We are talking to UW-Madison communication science professor Catalina Toma about group chats, group texts, how we communicate to our friends and family at the same time over text, maybe instead of social media, maybe replacing some of the ways we've used social media. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a group chat? Do you have lots and lots of group chats? Do you like them? What do you use them for? Practical stuff, fun stuff, a little bit of both? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with Catalina Toma, Associate Professor of Communication Science at UW-Madison, who researches social interaction over digital platforms, we're talking about one of those platforms now, the rise in popularity of group chats and text groups as a form of communication among family, friends, coworkers, you name it. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have group texts or group chats in your social group, your friends, your family? Do you like it? Does it get a little much? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls now. Libby is with us in Mozanie. Libby, hello. Hello. What did you want to tell us about? 
Well, you know, I I I have several groups in WhatsApp, and we actually also connect on Facebook. And I've been living here in the U.S. since I was 18, and I'm, I'm 55 now. And uh, I reconnected with my friends from elementary school. We have not seen each other for 45 years. Wow. And it started with my best friends, a group of three, and then we ended up adding 25 <laughs> out of the 32. And I also have my group from middle school and my group from high school down in Panama while I'm here. And we communicate constantly, and, and there's like a, a zillion notifications, but whoever doesn't want it, they can turn it off. Is is uh, energizing. I really love it. Uh, my day's busy, 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 because I teach. I just ignore it, uh, and then I go to it during the weekend when I have time. Let me, so it's very convenient. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm glad you're able to reconnect with old friends back in, I think you said, Panama. And uh, uh, Catalina, international communication has been difficult and expensive for many years, and now it's almost free for people in Libby's situation. Could you talk about uh, how this has changed how we communicate across not just state lines, but across international lines. No, absolutely. This is a great point. And I think this is where WhatsApp really shown in the beginning because it was a, a web-based uh, application that anybody with an internet connection could use as opposed to regular text messages that um, you'd have to be a subscriber for mm -hmm. and pay for. So it allowed people across the world to communicate with one another and connect across geographical boundaries. And that's such a gift and contribute so much to people's well-being and ability to stay in touch. So I really appreciate that point. And Libby also talked about some features of online communication of these group texts that are really beneficial, such as they're kind of asynchronous in the sense mm -hmm. that you don't have to respond right away. You don't have to engage right away in the same way that you would with a telephone call, right? You can take your time. You can engage at your convenience on the weekend or whatever works for you. And that could be really, really beneficial. In fact, this is why people prefer texting over, say, the telephone, uh, kind of in a more general sense. And they've developed research identifies this interesting phenomenon of phone fears, right? When the phone rings, um, you're almost worried because it's probably something bad and mm -hmm. it's probably something serious. That's when people feel like it's okay to intrude, to stop whatever you're doing so you can take the phone call. Whereas a group chat or any text for that matter, you can engage with at your convenience. And that's really great. Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Al joins us next in Green Bay. Al, hi. Hey, thanks for putting me on. So the setup for this is I'm a professional driver. Every time the Tampa Bay Buccaneers come to Green Bay, they hire our firm to move their owners around. There's five owners, their brothers and sisters, come from different locations. So we have one driver assigned to each one of these owners. On the Sunday morning of the game, the security guy sits down with us and he takes every one group text. Oh, we're losing. It doesn't matter what color your phone. It doesn't matter what color your phone is. Doesn't matter. You don't need an app. You just need the ability to text, right? So then, I text when I depart for the airport. I text when I've got my passenger on. I text when I got my passenger off. The security guy stays in one place. And he be immediately knows at any given time where any of the five people are that he's worried about. Interesting. Al, thanks a lot for sharing that with us. You're cutting in and out there a little bit. 
Uh, next time you see them, say maybe they should sell Man- Manchester United, by the way. <laughs> but th- this is a very practical use, a, a one-off use. We've got this logistical situation, and we're using this group chat to manage it, Catalina. Absolutely. We call these acts uh, micro-coordination, right? Texting mm-hmm. really allows you to coordinate with multiple people almost in real time if everybody's connected simultaneously and knows that they're important it's important to 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 converse in real time and you can do those uh, with many people and with much less effort than on a phone call and that's a really valuable aspect of texting well thanks a lot for that call we're talking about the rise of group text group chats as a way to communicate with uh friends family fellow drivers as it turns out in this case still time for you to join in with your experience uh for good or ill with group texting group chats at 800-642-1234 that's 800-642-1234 you can email ideas at wpr.org or post on the ideas network facebook page now texting has been around for a long time usually it was a two-way can be i text you you text me back that sort of thing what are you watching for as as our use of group chats evolves and group texting evolves? Well, it's interesting to think about uh, group size. You know, what is a good group size for having those conversations and how group size and composition will affect what it is that people talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to look at psychological effects. I mean, we predict that people enjoy these uh, group communication because more people are using them. Uh, and, uh, but it's important to study why they enjoy it, you know, what psychological benefits of connection, uh, people get through it, but also the bad side, like what are some troublesome conversations that could be had? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some blind spots that people could be having and maybe oversharing depending on the composition and the size of the group? And then the question of why am I not in this group? <laughs> Right. So a lot of technologies make exclusion a little invisible. Like if you're not part of the group, you don't know what's going on. So it doesn't hurt in the same way as seeing people in the office in that corner talking amongst themselves without you. So being excluded is a little bit less obvious. But when it does become obvious, it's as painful as any other exclusion. And uh, our caller earlier, Libby, mentioned, you know, some of these group chats are 20 some people that that seems like a lot to manage. That is a lot to manage. And this is what I hear anecdotally from my students, too. When groups become too large, they become dysfunctional, as in there's not a suitable conversation for everybody. So we have to move away from those groups and maybe create new ones. Let's bring on another caller. Chris is with us in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. So as it pertains to social media and the, the public realm, uh, I currently work with a company who uh, em- employs another company to pre-screen all potential applicants by not just doing a background check, but they check all of their social media, anything that you would post publicly, Facebook or X or what have you. And anything that's maybe radical or extreme could certainly um, cost somebody the ability to gain employment. So, uh, Interesting. You know, Chris, thanks a lot for the call. A lot of that out there, uh, barring a subpoena, as some famous crypto uh, entrepreneurs have discovered, mostly that kind of our texts or group texts aren't going to 
come up in that kind of uh, screening process, I would assume. Catalina. They are not. They are not. And that's a real advantage. I mean, we've all heard the stories of uh, employers and significant others like scrutinizing stuff that's being posted publicly in a way that was never intended by the poster. And that could have really serious repercussions. And this, you know, privacy risk is one of the reasons people move away to more private channels of communication. Thanks for the call, Chris. Time for another caller. Bonnie is with us in Lake Geneva. Bonnie, hi. Hi, how are you today? Good. What's your group text story? Hi, how are you today? Good. Bonnie, what did you want to tell us about? Well, I have a lot of siblings, and we have a group chat called the Cool Cats, (laughs) Cool Cats 2, and uh, we're very busy on it, but it gets crazy during Green Bay Packers games. Awesome, buddy. Thanks. I have a group of friends around the country now, and the only time pretty much we activate the group text is during a Packer game, maybe the Super Bowl. Uh, it's a, a, way, a nice way for occasional communication, Catalina. Absolutely. I used to have a group chat where we would Wordle. Do you remember Wordle oh, when yeah. it first came up? And we would share the Wordles every morning, and then we got tired of it after a while. But it was one of those situational group chats that uh, gives you some enjoyment about sharing something you have in common. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, before we run out of time, I want to talk about uh, this as an intergenerational thing. Because, like, okay, maybe adults do Facebook, kids do Insta or whatever they're doing now. Uh, my kids will be on the group chats. My parents will be on the group chats. It seems to be a place where people of different ages can come together. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that's really interesting. Uh, and one of the sticky points that this brings forth is the issue of literacy, right? Different generations might have different comfort levels mm-hmm. with the group chats. And that's why even though it's possible to have group chats on platforms like Facebook or Snapchat, they might not be as accessible intergenerationally as something really, really simple like just texting or just WhatsApp. We got to keep those considerations in mind. All right. Just uh, a personal question. How many group chats do you reckon you uh, have going at any given time? I have, oh, maybe four or five. Okay. I guess not a ton, but I enjoy all of them. Even if they're talking about stuff that doesn't pertain to me directly, <laughs> it's really nice to be included in the conversation, be a fly of the wall. I enjoy them a lot. Catalina, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Catalina Toma is an associate professor of communication science at UW-Madison. She's with us today to talk about group chats and group texting and why more and more of us are communicating with friends, family, and others over shared text messages, maybe instead of social media platforms. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to The Ideas Network. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Now the chilly weather is settling in here in Wisconsin. It's a perfect time to warm up with our tried and true soup recipes. Whether you're in the mood for a classic chicken noodle, a creamy seafood chowder, maybe a hearty mulligatawny, when it comes to soup, there's something for every occasion and pretty much everybody. Our next guest loves soup so much, he founded a soup company here in Wisconsin. He's with us on Food Friday to share the secret to making a great pot of good soup. 
You could join in at 800-642-1234. What is your go-to soup maybe this time of year? Is there a family recipe you swear by? Do you have a secret ingredient or technique to make your soup extra tasty? Or are you like I once was and you make boring, bland soups and you need some advice to make it better? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Stephen Wenhart is the founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Steve, thanks a lot for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Ralph. I understand some people actually call you soup. Can you uh, talk <laughs> about your love, maybe your level of fanaticism towards soup? Sure, sure. You know, um, some of my friends, I'm not even sure if they know my real name. They just call me soup. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that started a long time ago. I, you know, I've had this company for about 13 years, so... Um, you know, people just kind of forget your real name, call you soup. Um, and you know, it started actually, um, from a small little town up in Dora County, Fish Creek is where I'm from Mm -hmm. and, um, fell in love with soup up there. They made everything from scratch. It was really, really, you know, cool to see people light up with it. So I, I kind of just fell in love with it myself and, um, you know, it's kind of artistic. It's, it's, it's got a lot of different flavors and profiles and, you know, and, it, it never changes, you know, you can change it up, you can mm-hmm. make it fun, make it interesting. And, um, you know, it, it, it just set me down a path, right? And, uh, you know, I was, I was really happy to make a career out of it. Now, the challenge, it seems like to me to making the same kind of soup again and again, I'm a, I wing it, uh, it's based on what's in my fridge, what's going bad or whatever. I, <laughs> I never make the same pot of soup twice, pretty much. How hard is it to standardized to settle in on like this is the way i'm making my chicken noodle that's so you know what you're getting when you get my chicken noodle yeah no that's that's great uh you know that reminds me of my mother you know she would just take the the salary that's going bad and Uh make something out of it um you know that that process can be kind of daunting um to make something standardized and say this is this is what we're going to be having now for holidays thanksgiving or whatever whatever special treats you want to have when you make soup so you know some of the techniques i use are um using fresh ingredients um, and definitely weighing out all the ingredients. So like mm-hmm. I've got a scale and I have a book. This is the secret right here. You've got a book and you write down your weights and you are patient and you take your time and you just kind of keep working on that recipe until it gets to be just, just where you want it to be. I got to know, do you, you make a lot of soup at work. Do. do you ever just make soup for yourself at home? And All when you do time. that, do you just wing it? <laughs> All the time. And yes, there's a lot of creativity <laughs> that goes into that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of what you, you know, you know, it's an art too, right? Food's an art, culinary arts, right? So you get inspired, right? And it might be a dish you had at a, at a restaurant or you might saw something, you know, on TV or streaming and uh, you get excited. You're like, oh, I could see this turning into a soup, right? And so I got, we're working on some recipes right now that are really exciting, like um, like a buffalo chicken bisque, you know, mm. which is just, it's it's so fun to work on it, um, and you know, also kind of intimidating too, because you're 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 kind of creating it from nothing, right? So you just kind of have to go down a road, and you just keep working on it. So now I mentioned I once made really boring soup, you know, and I'd like make serve it up to my wife or whoever, and a lot of time spent putting extra salt in it and stuff like that. And the thing that really I was doing wrong, and this isn't rocket science, I didn't I didn't really do a broth or a stock or whatever. Can you talk about how important that is as a starting point to have good flavored liquid? Well, I, you know, I think that's I think that's the most important thing. And I, and I, and I say that because um, there you can, your, your whole palate's going to uh, change as soon as you have a really great broth. Uh, does it take time? Yeah, it does. And it, it takes, um, you know, uh, slow and low, uh, you know. What we do at Wisconsin Soup Company is literally like our, our model is literally, um, you know, 
slow pace, you know, slow simmered soups for fast paced lives, right? So, like we're we're doing it low and slow, and we're mm-hmm. creating all the, that that really great flavor, right? Um, so yeah, even in vegetable soups, you can still get a great, great solid flavor um, if you mix the right combination. So your your palate goes wild, right? Yeah. Now I I cheat usually when I make soup and use uh, a a bouillon paste. There's mm-hmm. stocks and things like that. Mm-hmm. I have made stocks some better, some worse. What is the key uh, for making that low and slow? What are the key elements of making our own good stock? Yeah. Um, well, you know, if we're, if we're talking like a vegetarian dish, right, like a vegetarian soup, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really important to, you know, uh, to explore or at least try the trinity, right? You're not going to have your onion, your garlic, your, your carrot, right? Um, and celery, right? You're going mm-hmm. to have all these different flavors. Um, I think that's really important to start there. Um, it's a good starting spot. But then don't be afraid. Like if you have leftover leeks or, or parsley or, you know, get some rosemary from the garden, right? Like start throwing some of those in there mm-hmm. and see like how that, you know, changes the complexity of the broth, right? Um, I've gone down this road and I have not even completed it yet. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of never ending, but it's, it's something where you can take a little bit of something that's part of your day and throw it in there and see how it turns out. And it's, and it's, it's really kind of remarkable what will happen on your palate. And for non-vegetarian, uh, when I have, you know, a rotisserie chicken or a cooked whole chicken, I will throw that, uh, the carcass in and spices and things like that. And yeah, like you say, low and slow, uh, like how, how low should we go on this? <laughs> yeah, uh, just, just about to a, a little bit of a simmer, a couple bubbles. Um, but now it's the time piece, right? Um, you know, crock pots work great because if you, if you have the time and you have 24 hours to spare, it's wonderful to just let that go low and slow. It'll take all the nutrients from the bones and it'll pull it out. Um, a couple little tips there, you know, apple cider vinegar, throw that in there. Um, I, I prefer distilled water because again, it will extract everything out of the bones. Um, and it's, it's another one of those little tips that will, you'll really make it really nutritious for you as well. Uh, I've seen controversy. Do bay leaves actually add flavor to soup? <laughs> I use them. I, it may just be an act of faith. I it, don't know. As far as flavor is concerned, I'm not 100 percent on that one. I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of I'm kind of with you on that. I, I will say though, the aroma of a bay leaf mm-hmm. is incredible, and I think that's where the magic really is in a bay leaf, and that's why I choose to use it in, in making soup. So it's Food Friday. We're talking to Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Surprise, we're talking about soup, uh, ways to make non-boring soups of all varieties. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions for Steve if you need some advice or your secrets if you're willing to share them. 800-642-1234 is the number, or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Mary joins us now in Eau Claire. Mary, hi. Hi. What did you want to tell us about, Mary? I well, um, my secret, like I love to make soup, and but sometimes it just needs a little something, and I don't know what it is. So I uh, will uh, put a few very generous uh, scoops of miso paste, and I use the the uh, white or pale paste, and it'll just give it a little more depth and flavor. Mary, thanks a lot for that call. I've used this. I've had it uh, miso soups at Japanese restaurants. Yep. It's fermented paste. Right. My curse is I'll buy some, use it a couple times, 
It migrates to the back of the fridge. I forget about it. Uh, do you, uh, miso uh, using yeah. in soup. Yeah, some thoughts. Yeah, you know, and and I think what you're um, kind of rounding out there is the like the umami mm. flavor that you're trying to achieve. And you're right. Uh, thanks, Mary, for that uh, call in. Um, you're, it does broaden out a soup. It does make it more rich and a little bit more like you want to have a little bit more of it. Another good couple of techniques there is uh, soy sauce. You could also try. And mushrooms, mushrooms are wonderful for that. Uh, you get that umami flavor. And, of course, we know that that also has that with meat as well. Mary, thanks a lot for that call. Now, Mary used a magical phrase there in all cooking, I think, but especially soup for me. This needs something. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, how do we evaluate a soup where they need something and figure out what that something is? Uh, you know what you do is you, you get some really solid taste testers around you. <laughs> and uh, I'm never lacking for those in my life. Um, everyone kind of wants to be a taste tester. Uh, it's important to have feedback because everyone's palate's just slightly different. And I think you sort of kind of get to the answer you're looking for eventually. Um, but, you know, you just got to you just got to go down that road. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have to say, oh, I could use a little of this, a little of that. Uh, my mom was great at just throwing stuff together, but her problem was she never wrote anything down, so we could <laughs> never have it the same way again. So, <laughs> my thing it always needs is well, salt sometimes, and number two, acid, uh, vinegar, lemon, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. could, you, could you talk about acid as an element, especially late in the game on, on a soup? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, we we typically uh, so we we do like a, a lemon um, mm. or chicken orzo. Yeah. And uh, that lemon flavor, when it comes through on a chicken stock that's been, you know, simmering for, you know, 12 to 24 hours, is just amazing, right? It just really comes out. It's really loud. Um, you know, that that's a definitely a, a great thing, especially it kind of offsets um, the salt you don't need as much, right? Mm-hmm. So it brings it out, brings flavor out as well. So, yeah, it doesn't need much either. You, you can be kind of subtle with it, right? You don't, you just put a little bit in at the end there and it'll open things up for you. For sure. Let's go back to our callers. Mark is with us in Two Rivers. Mark, hi. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, there's a couple of things my wife and I do when we make soup. Uh, one of the things is we can our own tomatoes, which uh, adds a lot of clean, fresh flavor. We also make our own vegetable stock. And one of our secret go-to spices is pesto. Uh, we will, right at the end, prior to serving the soup, we will whisk in a couple tablespoons of pesto right into the soup, and it really adds a lot of boost in flavor. Awesome, Mark. That is another something it needs at the end for me a lot of time is and I, something green is mm-hmm. in my head. And, and I think pesto or basil by itself could fit that category. Absolutely. You know, uh, we make a gorgonzola crab bisque. Um, with that, we put basil in there as well. And, you know, we, we, we love that flavor. It just it's so good. You know, it's it's a very comforting uh, aroma. Mark, thanks a lot for that call. Um, something I wonder about making home uh, soups is herbs, dry versus fresh, and when to put them in. I know one thing I used to do wrong was, like, I got these fresh herbs, one, I put in a little tiny sprinkle right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you might see the color by the end, but you're not tasting any of the flavor. Can you talk about how to use dry herbs, you know, the basils and oreganos versus fresh herbs. Yeah. It, you know, it depends on where you want that flavor to be pronounced in mm-hmm. the soup. If you want it to be part of, like, the broth part of it, um, you definitely want to add those as soon as you can. Uh, typically, like in a chili when we're making that, um, we add that actually, you know, right when the meat is cooking mm-hmm. up, all right? And it starts to, like, cook with the meat, and then that flavor stays throughout the entire product, and it's wonderful that way. Um, now, if you, want it, if you want that just to be a little bit more pronounced, like on a sip, right, you know, fresh parsley or herbs right at the end would really open that up, and you can taste that right away. Um, so it's, you know, that's where a nice garnish comes in, right? Um, fresh versus dried, um, yeah, there, there's definitely a difference. Um, but I, 
I would use both. You know, we use both. Mm -hmm. um, it just really kind of depends on uh, if you want it to be really loud or if, if subtle is what you're kind of going for, right? So, you know, you got to pick and choose what, you, what your interests are on, on that soup that you're creating there. Thanks again for that call. We're talking to Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. He's with us on Food Friday to share advice on making great soup at home. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. How do you soup? Do you follow a recipe or follow your heart or just see what's in the fridge? What do you think might, makes for a great soup? Do you have questions about how to make a soup better? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our Food Friday talk about soup with Stephen Wenhart from Wisconsin Soup Company. You can join in with your questions or your own advice at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Tom is with us in McQuanago. Tom, hi. Hi, Good afternoon. Uh, it's amazing that you guys put on the show at this time. I'm cooking soup right now, <laughs> and what I'm uh, cooking is a potato leek soup from Julia Child's second volume of the Master of uh, you know uh, Mastering French Cooking. And what's great about the soup is you can add a bunch of things to it to to change the flavors one way or the other. And I love it just the way it is, to tell you the truth. And I was wondering if your guest would have a suggestion off of this. Todd, thanks for the call. Any thoughts on potato leek soup? Uh, you know, whenever I take a traditional recipe that I hear about and I kind of go down this road, I'm like, well, okay, it's great. I'm happy that it's out there. People love it. How can we change it? Like, how can we make it a little bit more interesting? So, you know, my thing would be roasting the leeks, right, or something along these lines, or adding that to the base of it, or we'll puree it in there, add some more flavor, more depth to it. So it's kind of like taking the traditional, but then adding something else to it. So um, that, and you know, I'm not sure. Sometimes uh, some recipes call for you know the certain type of potato. Maybe it might be just russet or something like this. But you know, we I really love using our Wisconsin gold potato here. It's buttery. It's just it's really it's, you know blends really well. Um, it really makes a really nice uh, soup. Thanks a lot for that call, Tom. And mentioning blending, you know, sometimes I sometimes I go into a soup knowing it's going to be a broth with stuff in it, or I'm going to blend it. Sometimes it's a last minute call if I'm going to partially blend it. Uh, what what makes that decision for you? Whether it's going to be blended, blended a little, or straight up? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, you know. Um there's there's no right or wrong when it comes to soup, right? I mean, um, you, you sort of kind of just start and see how it turns out. And the next time you're like, well, you know, I could use a little bit more of this. Um, so, you know, we, we, you know, with a lot of our recipes, we really try to thicken our soups with raw ingredients. Um, so that being known, like, for instance, like our, our farmland split pea that we make, um, it's actually orange. A lot of people's split peas are green, and everyone always wonders why ours is orange. And we actually thicken it with a carrot. And carrot brings out that orange color. Mm -hmm. It also brings it a, a touch of sweetness as well, which I was looking for. So it offsets that, that chicken stock flavor. Interesting. So, yeah. And it, and it really, and people come back to it and they're so surprised. People that don't even like split pea soup are just like, I love that split pea soup because it still has the flavor of split peas. But again, it's been thickened with natural raw ingredients. I love that. Let's go back to our callers now. Glenn is with us in Wapan. Glenn, hi. Hi. I'm a big rotisserie chicken guy. But what I do is, rather than boil noodles, I go and take, uh, I'll go to a quick trip and I'll get a uh, mac and cheese. I put the mac and cheese in there, 
I like uh, Ben's rice, rice in the packages. Heat it up for 90 seconds, put a couple of those in there. And maybe a day later, if I'm getting a little short, if I've got some leftover spaghetti and meatballs, <laughs> or if i got some meatloaf, goes in the soup. Wow. Now, on the mac and cheese, are you just using the noodles, or does the cheese uh, powder, or depending oh, on the, the brand, cheese. the glop goes into? No, this is this is a frozen. It's It's got the regular cheese in it. Okay. comes in a little uh, container with cellophane over it. You normally put it in, uh, poke holes and put it in the microwave for two or three minutes. Gotcha. And I put that in there, and then I get a little cheesy flavor. Nice. Okay, mm-hmm. cheesy, noodly, ricey, eventually meatloafy soup. <laughs> I, soup can keep changing, I guess, Steve. It does evolve, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that that does kind of sound a little bit like a hamburger helper almost there. Mm-hmm. That sounds delicious. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's right. You can you could do that with meat. Um um, you know, stretching stuff. I think that's kind of the idea of soup anyways, right? So take something and make it last for a little bit longer and yeah. throwing those other ingredients in there is interesting. Right? Oh, and mentioning noodles and soups reminds me, uh, a kind of a running joke in my house is sometimes my soups turn into stews along the way, especially if noodles are involved. How do you cook with noodles so that they don't just keep absorbing every bit of liquid and you're eating it your soup with a fork? Yeah, and here's the here's and rice is another example. You cook it separately, right? You mm-hmm. you you let it absorb all the moisture on its own prior to putting it into the soup, right? And that's you have to do it this way, right? Because uh, once you add it to the soup, it's going to do exactly what you're saying, mm-hmm. and it's going to start taking all that moisture, right? Um, the good thing is is that once all the starches are released and the, the rice is cooked or or the noodles cooked, um, it'll, it'll hold its own, and then it'll also help thicken the soup up as well. So it's another technique as well. It's Food Friday. We're getting great soup advice with Steve Wenhart from Wisconsin Soup Company. Back to your calls. Erica is with us in Campbellsport. Erica, hi. Hi. Um, I enjoyed seeing you at the West Bend Farmer's Market soup. Thank you. And I was wondering, how do you reheat soup the next day? Like, if you make a nice soup, every time I make soup and go to reheat it, it's basically a stew. And I don't know what to do to make it not be that way. That is a great question. Um, so here's the thing. When you make a soup, uh, it's it's really important that you cool the soup down immediately. So why we do that that way at Wisconsin Soup Company is because once it's cooling down, it's it, it's going to lose all of its steam and no moisture is going to be um, dissipating from it, right? So you're going to lock it all in. So we cool our soups down really, really quickly. And a lot of people at home tend to just leave it on the stove and forget about it for a half an hour yeah, or 45 <laughs> minutes and it never gets and all that evaporation is happening so mm-hmm. you have to kind of reconstitute that a little bit right um so the the double boiler method is probably the best way so you're not scorching the bottom of the pan when you're warming up soup again um that can be a little bit more of a technical challenge sometimes um but that's the best way to do it if, if you were to ask me Thanks a lot for the call, Erica. Shanda is with us in Green Bay. Shanda, hi. Hi. Um, I have a little bit to add to the conversation, no pun intended. Um, When I make soups, I love to add a pinch of what I would call warm mulling spices sometimes. So some of my soups will get cloves, some will get nutmeg, some will get star anise. Um, It all depends on what I'm making. Um, My pea soup has just a pinch of cloves, and it adds the super warm, delicious very huge depth of flavor. All my cream soups get a pinch of nutmeg, and I think just adding those very interesting full-flavored spices does a lot for a soup. 
I've had a lot of, I think, chicken noodle soups with uh, cloves or chicken matzo soups with cloves in them. So she's uh, she's uh, not on a weird track there, Steve. Not at all, no. I think they're underused, um, but they're underused because they're so powerful as well. Mm. So you have to be careful, right? Uh, you want to have that. take want, over. Yeah, they really can, yeah. <laughs> and that happens so often. So it's like, that's where you have to find that really nice uh, balance. Sometimes rosemary can do that, too. It's like you know, it can steal the show, right? <laughs> yes. And you want to keep that in control a little bit. Yeah, I, I've, I've made that mistake. Shanda, thanks a lot for the call. Linda joins us now in Milwaukee. Linda, hi. Hi. I'm, you know, I'm back to the old traditional chicken noodle soup. What does your guest say is his best recipe for chicken noodle soup? <laughs> I don't know if you have time for a whole recipe, Steve, but a, a secret for a great chicken noodle soup, at least, or your favorite tip. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously, so when we make when we make chicken noodle soup, at home it's the best part is you roast the whole chicken mm-hmm. now what you're going to end up doing is you're taking off all the the good meats that you want to have the dark meats are great because they're very flavorful the breast meat can be a touch dry sometimes if it's overcooked sometimes they cook at different temperatures so taking out the meat you want but then do the hard work make a stock out of it right get those onions going get that garlic going put some of that all in there some of that celery in there and the carrots um, really make a really flavorful broth. Um, that way the meat and the noodles and, you know, the little bit of parsley you throw on the end there aren't, they're all coming together, right? They're all, they're all working together. Thanks a lot for the call, Linda. And our, just our last few moments, Steve, is there a cutting edge soup that you're experimenting, experimenting with right now? I think I gave a little bit too much away earlier when I said the <laughs> buffalo chicken. Well, that's disc. right. Um, but that's one of them. We also have this, uh, this really cool, um, it's, it's, we, we're calling it right now uh, spicy chorizo loco, uh, which is like a glorified mm, taco soup with uh-huh. chorizo. And it's, it's really fun. Well, it's, that sounds it's, fantastic. It's got a lot of flavor to it. A couple spicy soups down, yeah. down. All yeah. right. Change it up a little bit. Steven, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Rob. Thank you. That's Steve Wenhart, founder and CEO of Wisconsin Soup Company. Sorry, Steve Soup Wenhart. He joined us for Food Friday to talk about the wide and wonderful world of soup making. You can keep sharing your favorites, by the way, over at the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, check out the latest research on psychedelic substances and their possible applications for mental health care. If you have an experience to share, you can email ideas at WPR.org, then join the conversation Monday morning at 8. A long-running classic rock mystery has been solved, and it goes back to the 19th century. As reported by the BBC, Led Zeppelin's album, Led Zeppelin 4, that's the one with Stairway to Heaven on it, has a picture on the cover of a man carrying this big bundle of sticks and twigs. The mystery, who was that guy? The image was found on a picture at a resale shop. Some people thought it was a photo taken of a painting. But hold on, a researcher in England was looking through old photos for an unrelated project and found the original image, a black and white photograph. He was a Led Zeppelin fan. He recognized the guy right away. After some research, he found that the image is from around 1890 in Wiltshire and happens to be a a, a Thatcher, somebody who collected Thatch, named Lot Long. The photo is going to be part of an exhibit at the Wiltshire Museum next year. No word on whether there's going to be a soundtrack for that exhibit. This is Central Time.